the theme for the evening talk is 1492 to 1992, Heal the Earth. Throughout much of the world, particularly the Western world and the Americas, there are a whole range and variety of articles, books, features and commemorations which are taking place this year which acknowledges the influence of this famous or infamous journey that Christopher Columbus took in 1492 and during the period of time between then and now there has of course been various descriptions of the impact and the significance of that journey and first it was described as a voyage which went to the new world that conquered the new world and it would, then it was described as the the start, the launching of the colonial period, the first steps towards significant international trade, the uh, meeting, another favourite of recent years, a meeting of different cultures. But all of this conveys a certain kind of position about this journey a 37-day journey, apparently, uh, that Columbus took when he crossed the seas to what came to be called the Americas. And we are told at this time that the original motivation for this was in part the quest of Columbus and an opportunity to, to make money and once funded by the king and queen of Spain of that time, the history books report that he was offered 10% uh, of the gold, spices, and, what, uh, and whatever else he collected en route. And then there are passages which are record that particular voyage and some of the events which took place. And so for some there is 500 years of celebration of all of this and for others as Jose told me some months ago there are parts of the world where what is being marked is 500 years of resistance. And in one of the many articles that uh, are available, I read one or two, would like to read to you at the moment, one or two passages to which communicate some aspects of that time. 
It is said, Columbus, when he and his sailors came to this Caribbean island with swords, the Arawaks, those are the people living on the island, ran to greet them, brought them food, water and gifts. Columbus wrote, as soon as I arrived in the Indies, I took some natives by force in order that they might give me information whatever there is in these parts. <coughs> he, he went on, he said that the Indians willingly traded everything they owned. They are well built with good bodies and handsome features. They would make fine servants. With 50 men we could sub subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. On his second voyage, supported by some 1,200 men, Columbus went from island to island and took as much gold and as many slaves as he could. Let us in the name of the Holy Trinity go on s sending all the slaves that could be sold. The Taino, the Arawak and the other peoples of the Caribbean were host to Columbus and thousands were systematically slaughtered. Quote, Thirteen at a time they were hanged in honour of the Twelve Apostles and the Redeemer. Every man over fourteen was obliged to bring a quota of gold to the conquistadors every three months. Those who could not pay their tribute had their hands cut off as a lesson. Most bled to death. The repression was so brutal that many of the Taino, Caribs and Arawaks faced with slavery at the hands of the conquistadors chose instead to commit mass suicide. One witnessed this slaughter. Decrying their cruelties, one wrote, five million died on the Caribbean islands and 45 million died on the mainland. The Arawaks had numbered a quarter of a million at the time of Columbus's arrival. By 1650, none of their descendants were left. Six years after Columbus landed in America, Vasco da Gama sailed around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. As the indigenous Americans were exterminated, the invaders needed to locate an alternative labor force to exploit the vast resources they received. Africa became the supplier of labor. Quote, in 1518, a Spanish ship carried the first cargo of our people from the Guinea coast to America. This opened a slave trade that was to endure for three and a half centuries. Some statistics put the total number of Africans who lost their lives during the Middle Passage or by resisting capture at 200 million. The number of people who reached the Americas as slaves was in the tens of millions. Quote, we can never forget that we were taken by force in chains or that some of us came on slave ships called Jesus. We were seen as chattel, not human beings, as objects, not subjects, as property that could be bought, owned, possessed and sold. 1492 and the world view that it represented rooted itself in a doctrine of racism that justified exploitation. So we see, and as the quotes from the history books uh, show to us, that in the movement of 
exploration. It wasn't just a movement to explore, to go from the known to the unknown, but it also carried with it a very heavy cultural, ideological baggage. A baggage which was had a weight of superiority to it, a weight of extraordinary psychological arrogance, a patronizing view to other cultures and societies. And we see the continuity of this in, in manifest forms in our own societies, culture and worldview. And I think sometimes we, in a tragedy of the inner life of all of this, it's as though sometimes pride has replaced humility. Knowing has been substituted for not knowing. Cleverness has been substituted for innocence. And rather than decrying the tragedy of uh, history, perhaps what's required from us is uh, taking and making time to actually look again at our relationship to life and actually to almost to start all over again, to start with this place of humility and a place of innocence and a freshness of looking. And I think the old, if I may say, whatever the old is in its tyrannical, political, social and economic form, simply is quite inappropriate for the world that we are living in. And I'm saying this particularly mindful of elections which will be taking place here in the United States in some months and in a few days' time uh, in Britain and uh, Italy. And in the looking at the recent old and the associations that with it, that sometimes we have our sympathetic voices which have their leanings, political leanings, left, right, centre, conservative, uh, liberal. And to give an example of this in uh, my own uh, situation, if I may say, just recently, and I hear this in the uh, United States regularly enough as well, it's a common voice. Just recently I heard, I received a letter from somebody that I knew and who said to me, because I am uh, standing for Parliament in Britain for the Green Party, so you'll have to get a, a party political broadcast for the next few minutes if you don't mind. I received a letter from a person and said, essentially, Christopher, since you have absolutely no chance of being uh, elected, <laughs> I have decided that I will vote for the Liberal Democrats, which is fairly uh, akin, I would say, to the uh, Democrats of the United States in the uh, political uh, viewpoint, perception because I think the person wrote it's necessary and it's vital that we end 13 years of conservative rule of the last throes of Thatcherism and the Greens are not going to be able to do it so 
I'm going to vote for the Liberal Democrats. And this view of tactical voting, of a strategy to get rid of one system to replace it with another, is a very, very common viewpoint. So in the letter, while trying not to um, hark on the case too much of the, of the uh, green political economic analysis, I said to the person, fine, if you vote for the Liberal Democrats, but remember, if you do, you vote for the sustained support and production of nuclear weapons, that your leader, in this case a man named uh, Paddy Ashdown, was uh, a supporter and a full advocate of the war uh, in the Gulf with all its tragic human and environmental consequences. If you vote for the Liberal Democrats, you also vote for the continuity of sustained, uh, indiscriminate economic growth with all of its consequences, both in one's own land and worldwide. A vote for the Liberal Democrats is a vote for that. I said, if that's what you believe, then vote for it. And I think sometimes we are prepared. I kind of understand why, but sometimes we seem to be prepared to engage in uh, a strategy in political life of compromise, of second best, of thinking that the present system itself is satisfactory and can be improved when the long history of it, I feel, shows one of any of the left, right and centre wings of the spec spectrum of an ongoing human environmental tragedy. All of it is a tragedy. And therefore I do think that democracy, that what we live in, is in fact the democracy of selfishness. It's democratic selfishness that's at work. It's a democracy in which so often the primary thought which works is not healing the earth, it's not bringing community and sentient life and environmental life together, it is the democracy of what's in it for me. What can I get? What would give me the most? What would benefit me the most? And this thinking which takes, takes place so often is a thinking which runs against the grain of spiritual and global awareness. What the Greens are saying to Mark One's protest of this, that where there are candidates and one feels that the candidates in an election period are candidates who are not concerned with global awareness, not concerned with the profound welfare of all humanity and life, who are imprisoned to the, the vested interests of the nation state, that to go to the ballot box and spoil the ballot paper. Not to be stand back from it and 
as I think something like 50% in people in the United States and 20% in Britain don't even go to the ballot box, don't actually register their vote. Well, I would say if there's a candidate who is not giving a, a comprehensive analysis and caring view towards life and is still trapped in the system of the obsession with the nation state, then put your cross through all the names. Something has to change much more significantly than what you and I are being offered, I feel, by our political leaders. And I include, if I may say, the whole spectrum of them. What we see today is to quote, um, don't go on too long politically, although I'm tempted, as you can tell. <laughs> what, what we see is, what, as Mr. George Bush, he must have absolutely cursed the day he ever said New World Order. <laughs> he has been deservedly, metaphorically speaking, hung, drawn and quartered for such a remark. The, the scriptwriters must have had a nightmare night that night to have slipped that into one of his uh, 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 speeches. And we might say, from another level, there is a new, new world order. It's a new world order of concern. And firstly, and I think this is one which each person, each one of us in our life has to consider with considerable degree of reflection and, uh, and uh, insight upon, and that is what I would call global politics. Global politics includes the feature which is taking place of global warming, largely produced by our way that we live, the, the outpouring of several tons of carbon uh, dioxide, the destruction of the tropical uh, rainforests, all of this is of global concern. And yet somehow global concerns don't seem to enter adequately into any real analysis of who we vote for and the representations that we might make to people who have some influence over our life. We find ourselves hopefully concerned with the, the state of the ozone layer, where this expanding, shrinking hole, the thinning of the ozone layer itself, the consequences to human life, marine life, plant life. And what we see again and again that something which can affect the whole life of the earth is actually regarded as being of very little significance in daily life. It seems sometimes that such situations are so vast in terms of dealing with them that they can be put on the back burner, they can be shelved. And yet we see just from a year ago that when there is the determination there to launch a huge international war 
against a, a third-rate, plimsolled army power uh, in, in the third world with 15 or 17 million people in, in which huge devastation of destruction and loss of life and environmental abuse to the nth degree, it can happen. And we all have our various views and concerns. But what about global warming? What about destruction of the rainforests? What about the hole in the ozone layer? What about the increase of 100 million people on this earth every year? World population. And sometimes such issues and of such magnitude in people's lives seem too big to deal with. And I wonder, are they too big to deal with them or is it that the image that the inner life generates of such issues that somehow or other we balk at the idea of responding to them? We feel a kind of fragility, a vulnerability in, this, in the face of something which appears big. And it has emotionally, intellectually, spiritually and actively a kind of paralyzing effect on our life. Does it have to have? Could we dare, could be willing to put our heart and our being into looking at such issues? To be well informed and from being well informed to also be active on global issues and not just be preoccupied as we so often are with either what's going on with me and my life or what's going on in just my backyard important as that is What would one be prepared to do to expand one's whole conception and perception of life on earth? Are we brave enough? Do we have enough courage to think globally, act globally? One of the things which occurs with this, and I uh, express concern amongst the, in the international green movement with regard to this, is that there's a tremendous outpouring of information. This outpouring of information can serve our purposes or it can contribute to despair. What outpouring of information does whatever the form that it takes, is, particularly in international global politics, is to regard the future with, with an increasing degree of pessimism at any level. And when pessimism begins to enter into our futurizing, into looking at the future and thinking it will get worse, it will get worse, it will get worse, what it does, it has a debilitating impact 
on consciousness and it leads to cynicism. So I do think both in what we read and what we say and the way that we respond to situations, the putting out of information about the future has to be treated about anything, any situation with immense caution because there is a certain kind of arrogance again uh, a patronizing view of I know, we know what the future will bring which may or may not be accurate so when one is moving in particular circles in one's life and referring to the future either personal future national future, global future please, please be cautious very easily has a backlash to it. No matter how assured one feels, no matter how much faith one has in the various authority figures who speculate and try to tell us what will be. Nobody knows. And what one sees too, for those whose concerns go beyond self, particularly if there is some, for some of you, some history of reflection and concern about larger issues of life, is that sometimes when we look back and we have said to each other, and we have read and we have heard, this will happen at such and such a date in the future, whatever it might be. And perhaps that prediction comes about, whatever it might be, global warming, destruction of rainforests, various wars, famines, conflicts, and other crises that take place on this earth. But each time we engage in this futurizing activity, it's almost saying, What's happening now is kind of okay because it's going to get worse in the future. And we do not realize that we're living in a crisis. We do not realize the sensitivity and the immediacy of the fate of the earth. Sometimes one gets a little piece of information and it, and it generates a small spark inside of oneself. And one's, from that small spark it becomes an initiative to pursue information a little bit further and to find ways to actively express one's concern. A little piece of information came to me recently and it was quite unrelated to some reading that I've been doing on this, this 500 year period. And, in, and one political activist friend of mine, a man named Jonathan Porritt, 
In the public talk that I was listening to a few months ago, he said rather apologetically during the course of his talk, he referred to what is called, I don't know how well this is known here, it's called GATT. And GATT is the G-A-T-T, it's the abbreviation for the General Agreement on Trade and Tariff. Basically, this organization, international, uh, Western-dominated organization, has, to its great advantage, worked out the trade agreements which are most suitable for the West, of course. And these trade agreements get, it always sounds, as Jonathan said, it sounds rather boring to actually hear about. So he just referred to it in just one or two sentences and moved on on this particular theme that evening. While listening to him, it sparked my curiosity. I want to find out more about this organization, GATT. And as I found out more through just through reading and listening and talking and picking up the name on the radio and occasional TV, it became more and more clear that in a way what took place in 1492 is going on in 1992 and things haven't actually changed that much. And to give one small example of the disparity and to think about these things when you're buying goods, please, especially foreign goods, that during the terrible famines that took place and this so-called compassion fatigue that also took place in the West, that when the famine was taking place in Ethiopia, one of the most horrible famines of recent uh, decades in terms of the sheer numbers of people that were involved and are still involved, we, that is we, the West, United States, Europe, etc., were still importing more food from Ethiopia than we were actually giving in aid. This is GATT. Just recently, a Prime Minister, I, I referred to the uh, subjugation of the peoples of uh, the Caribbean. A Prime Minister from a Caribbean country came to Britain because there is an agreement being worked out at the present time to lower the cost of bananas in South America to a price which would be beneath the price of bananas in the so-called banana republics, meaning that those countries' economy is totally dependent on bananas for its survival. And by lowering the cost of bananas in one place, it will basically eliminate the economy of some islands in the Caribbean. Western governments want the, to pay the cheapest price for bananas. They are going along with it. Prime Minister of one of these islands in the Caribbean went cap in hand to England, to the other EC, that means European community uh, countries, saying, please, please, don't buy the cheapest bananas from those because it will devastate our economy. 
this situation is being repeated again and again and again. What that means in actual terms that you and I do not pay the real price for the food that we should. We get it cheaply at the expense of the people in the third world. Where is the voices of protest about it? Where is the international movement about all this? In Tanzania, a woman's working in the fields growing cotton. The West just wants the raw material so then we can do the rest and make the real profit. And in the piece of land that she has in Tanzania to grow cotton, for her to buy a cotton sari, remember she's the cotton grower, for her to buy a cotton sari costs her one year's wages. These examples, countless, countless examples of this operation of GATT. General agreement on trade and tariffs. Where is the protest? Where are the organisers? So in looking at larger movements and the disparity of trade which was little different from the time of Columbus to 500 years later, what way can we look into this without despair, without cynicism, without fear of the future? What can I do to enlighten my life? To actually show some genuine coexistence and codependency and interrelationship and interbeing with others? What, what way can that be made active and effective? I think one of the important aspects of that, and it was referred to uh, a bit uh, earlier on uh, in the day, is the, the ability to employ the resources of information to actually say, well, what ways can I actively be a well-informed human being and to be well-informed which shows itself in a particular activity? And what that means, I think, for any person is to find ways and means in which we as people meet together and find ways to bring our resources together and sow seeds from what we pull, what we share and to make that activity count. No matter how futile the endeavour may appear, how ideal and grandiose it may seem and how impossible to fulfill it doesn't actually matter let me give you a personal example here as I mentioned earlier I have the uh, dubious privilege
being the Green Party candidate in the constituency, the, it's the second time that I have stood, and to all intents and purposes, at the present time, I should be knocking on people's front doors today, and I probably would be if they didn't watch television so much. <laughs> and I wrote prior to some seven months ago to uh, uh, members and uh, the coordinators for the West Country, and I said in my letter to them that though they had uh, invited me to uh, stand and speak on green issues, and they know if I speak on green issues, there's going to be a fair degree of input on spiritual matters simultaneously, since I can't separate the two. And I said, however, retreat work, this work here, must take priority for me over party politics. Party politics has to take second place to this kind of work. Which, in a way, is true, and also, it puts extra onus on all of you. <laughs> because it is another way of saying that if I am prepared to, and, and happily prepared, of course, to come here to serve the Dharma, to give spiritual teachings, to speak on uh, the theme of healing the earth, then the uh, fruits of that, in some way, somehow, has to be shown in the people's lives that I speak to. If it doesn't make any difference in your life, then I am a bigger contributor to the problem of global existence than I am to its healing since just coming across the, uh, the, the aeroplane is a pretty damaging thing to do in the first place. So I sometimes have to take comfort in the famous an often repeated statement of the Buddha where he, he, says, go, he says, go forth and serve the Dharma, teach the Dharma for the welfare, the benefit of the many, since the, the Dharma, the spiritual teachings are uh, wonderful in the beginning, wonderful in the middle, and wonderful in the end. And he probably didn't realize how comforting that can be when one is sitting on an aeroplane speculating of the cost of such privileged form of transport. So in our looking at situations and our activities with them, as I say, people working together has an extraordinary impact on consciousness that in such a way the meeting together of like-minded people can easily accommodate larger issues, such as global issues. And we have to explore and find ways in our life to really see what way can I live, not so much as a consumer, but as a conserver. Am I able to find ways to change my consciousness from consuming to conserving? And what are practical steps that actually make that happen? Sometimes 
we see it's not very far away, it's all around us. We, that is I and uh, Yvonne and Jose, have commented at least twice today how unusually warm it appears in Insight Meditation Society's centre. Sometimes alarmingly warm in some rooms. And sometimes people find themselves opening up their windows, presumably to warm up the environment outside as well. <laughs> and though some of us have commented on this year in and year out, I think with unfailing visits of mine every year, I've made comment on the, the heat in the, pl in the place. One still, for whatever reason of madness that one has, persistently endeavours to chip away at this desire to be underdressed indoors in the winter by having an excessive amount of heat on, whereas one warm jumper would conserve considerable degree of energy. Small steps like that are steps which can go from a spark to a fire. And sometimes with warmth and energy and conservation and looking at that, sometimes we feel cold. And we feel the coldness actually in the body. Sometimes we feel cold when we're sitting here. And we might assume that the coldness which we are experiencing is a direct result of the temperature around us. The memory will tell us this. We have been cold outside, therefore, one is inside and the temperature is not as warm as one would like inside, so one feels cold. may not have much to do with environment around us at all. It might be emotionally cold. And the emotional life has a very close, intimate relationship with cellular life. can't really separate them all that much. And so sometimes when we're feeling cold, we want to look for some um, extra blankets. And sometimes it would appear that when we're in the meditation uh, room, it, we, we, we've got the kind of igloo mentality. And you know, there's like a moving into a little cave and everything's piled in there and get tucked in, in there. And it may have very little to do with what's actually temperature-wise is happening around. How's the feeling life? That's more, might be more the issue. How's the heart life? Is, is one's heart feeling warm? Warm to life, warm to being in the moment, warm to the being present? Or is one feeling rather detached, alienated, cut off, rather cold, cool, indifferent. And that's not being recognized. It's not being acknowledged. Uh, and if it is, we're not sure what to do about it. So then, we take the material world 
to try to feel warm. It's no solution. So I think in human isolation, human separatism, which is as unsatisfactory as the other forms of separatism, including that one there of uh, racism, one of the obvious features of separatism. But we have human separatism in many other forms as well. And human togetherness and the awareness of that togetherness brings greater warmth. And greater warmth means less neediness. Sometimes, everyday, everyday mind <coughs> thinks about moving moving from one place to another, moving from one apartment to another, one location to another. This is a common thought. And sometimes there's a usefulness and a necessity for this to take place for all sorts of reasons. And those reasons can be environmental, of course, can be emotional, connection with another, uh, practical work-study, change of environment, get out of the city, get to the city, or whatever. And sometimes we observe with ourselves that the conditioning of mind, that in making a move from one place to another, the force of conditioning is to think rather exclusively in terms of a, a bigger and better space. Not always. Bigger and better space. So sometimes when we think about moving, the thought is, I'm in this particular locality, whatever it might be, and I like something bigger and better. Sometimes, simply because one has accumulated so many goods in the course of time, that rather than think about reducing the number of goods to have more space, one thinks of more space to get the goods into. Someone needs more rooms. And then after a period of time, this room, these rooms are not enough. So then one thinks of more space. More space means more work. More work, more money to earn, to pay for it. More money to pay for it means more goods to buy. More goods to buy means more goods to clean, more goods to repair, more goods to replace. And this becomes a successful existence. <laughs> and it's so habitual... It's such a feature of social life that we hardly find ourselves at all stopping in our tracks and saying the obvious. This is madness. It is human madness. The pressure on ourselves, the pressure on the environment, the pressure on employment, the pressure on economic growth, the pressure on success, and waiting there in the wings is death. All of it and all of us will go and we live in the mythology that it won't. 
No wonder so many, not so many, so few, but some say, let me be a monk or a nun. Let me step out of this. And some, some of us have actually uh, done that for a period of time. And the monks and nuns who are genuinely renunciates, genuinely have given up, sometimes can be a very useful and valuable reminder to us of what simplicity is all about, what contentment with little, what living as a conserver rather than as a consumer uh, really means. And I think because of the nature of life, the nature of the world, and that we live in a finite world with finite resources and finite uh, features, including our own existence, that since that's the nature of the world as it shows itself to us, are we willing to say, let me look more carefully at my life? Let me stop and really take a look at it. And that's what facilities like IMS and other places essentially are all about. To really stop and really look and to ask oneself, either in the activities or in the relationship to the activities, do I actually wish to continue in this mode? Do I really wish to continue in this? And would one be willing, as the Buddha once said, in the very stream of becoming, to stop and stand still in the stream, no matter how much that water, that fast-moving stream is pushing one along to find a way to stop and anchor oneself to it and say, do I want to just flow along like all the rest? And I say there's something profoundly spiritual about it. I think to stop still is an act of compassion in itself. It's a, a statement of a, of a genuine reverence for life. Sometimes so such people who have stopped and have looked again and again. I say such people who do that in, in the, and who go against the stream of becoming, uh, who go against the force of the compelling circumstances, such people show more courage than Columbus crossing across the, to discover the Americas. It's one thing to set off in the boat against the elements going across the sea that certainly takes some courage. It's one thing else to stop still in the face of the stream of society 
and its endless preoccupations with growth and success and privilege and more, more, more. It takes a lot of spirit to, to do that. So he says, spiritual teachings and political economic awarenesses, global considerations, the way of life that contributes actively to healing the earth are not distinguishable from each other. To be deeply political is to be deeply spiritual. To be deeply aware is to be deeply reverential. To be well informed is revealed not so much in knowledge but in action. And so situations like this in the silence and in the stillness does offer, offer all of us wonderful opportunity for genuine renewal because we are given the gift of a time and space to stop and be still and say and ask ourselves, what has to be left behind here? What has to be given up here? What has to stop once and for all here? What has to change while being here? What, what does it mean to go from the, the known to the unknown? Am I willing to make those steps in a way different from the Columbuses of the world? In a way in which going from the unknown doesn't carry any baggage of the past of conceit and arrogance and the, the patronizing, colonizing mentality. To go with freshness and innocence. then we are participants in healing of the earth. And then 1992 can mark something far more significant for each person than 1492 marked for the Americas. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. Let us have a couple of quiet minutes, shall we please, together?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.